Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and I'm reading today from Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty, the particular one today being Human Inability. It was delivered March 7, 1858 at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens in London, England, and its text is John 6:44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Now, coming to Christ is a very common phrase in Holy Scripture. It's used to express those acts of the soul wherein, leaving at once our self-righteousness and our sins, we fly unto the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness to be our covering and his blood to be our atonement. Coming to Christ then embraces in it repentance, self-negation, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it sums within itself all those things which are the necessary attendants of these great states of heart, such as the belief of the truth, earnestness of prayer to God, the submission of the soul to the precepts of God's gospel, and all those things which accompany the dawn of salvation in the soul. Coming to Christ is just the one essential thing for a sinner's salvation. He that comes not to Christ, do what he may, or think what he may, is yet in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. Coming to Christ is the very first effect of regeneration. No sooner is the soul quickened than it at once discovers its lost estate, is horrified thereat, looks out for a refuge, and believing Christ to be a suitable one, flies to him and reposes in him. Where there is not this coming to Christ, it is certain that there is as yet no quickening. Where there is no quickening, the soul is dead in trespasses and sins, and being dead it cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have before us now an announcement, very startling, some say very obnoxious. Coming to Christ though described by some people as being the very easiest thing in the world, is in our text declared to be a thing utterly and entirely impossible to any man, unless the Father shall draw him to Christ. It shall be our business, then, to enlarge upon this declaration. We doubt not that it will always be offensive to carnal nature, but nevertheless the offending of human nature is sometimes the first step towards bringing it to bow itself before God. And if this be the effect of a painful process, we can forget the pain and rejoice in the glorious consequences. I shall endeavor this morning, first of all, to notice man's inability, wherein it consists. Secondly, the Father's drawings, what these are, and, and how they are exerted upon the soul. And then I shall conclude by noticing a sweet consolation which may be derived from this seemingly barren and terrible text. And I might add here that we won't cover all of that today, but we'll begin. First, then, man's inability. The text says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Wherein does this inability lie? First, it does not lie in any physical defect. 
if in coming to Christ, moving the body or walking with the feet should be of any assistance. Certainly man has all physical power to come to Christ in that sense. I remember to have heard a very foolish antinomian declare that he did not believe any man had the power to walk in the house of God unless the Father drew him. Well, now the man was plainly foolish because he must have seen that as long as a man was alive and had legs, it was as easy for him to walk to the house of God as to the house of Satan. If coming to Christ includes the utterance of a prayer, man has no physical defect in that respect. If he be not dumb, he can say a prayer as easily as he can utter blasphemy. It's as easy for a man to sing one of the songs of Zion as to sing a profane and, and uh, libidinous song. There's no lack of physical power in coming to Christ. All that can be wanted with regard to the bodily strength man most assuredly has, and any part of salvation which consists in that is totally and entirely in the power of man without any assistance from the Spirit of God. Nor, again, does this inability lie in any mental lack. I can believe this Bible to be true just as easily as I can believe any other book to be true. So far as believing on Christ is an act of the mind, I'm just as able to believe on Christ as I'm able to believe on anybody else. Let his statement be but true. It's idle to tell me I cannot believe it. I can believe the statement that Christ makes as well as I can believe the statement of any other person. There's no deficiency of faculty in the mind. It's capable of appreciating, as a mere mental act, the guilt of sin, as it is of appreciating uh, the guilt of assassination. It's just as possible for me to exercise the mental idea of seeking God as it is to exercise the thought of ambition. I have all the mental strength and power that can possibly be needed, so far as mental power is needed in salvation at all. Nay, there is not any man so ignorant that he can plead a, a lack of intellect as an excuse for rejecting the gospel. The, the defect, then, does not lie either in the body or what we are bound to call, speaking theologically, the mind. It's not any lack or deficiency there, although it is the vitiation of the mind, the corruption or the ruin of it, which, after all, is the very essence of man's inability. But permit me to show you wherein this inability of man really does lie. It lies deep in his nature. Through the fall, and through our own sin, the nature of man has become so debased and depraved and corrupt that it is impossible for him to come to Christ without the assistance of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, in trying to exhibit how the nature of man thus renders him unable to come to Christ, you must allow me just to take this figure. You see a sheep. How willingly it feeds upon the herbage. You never knew a sheep sigh after, after carrion, <laughs> not wanting meat, in other words. It could not live on lion's food. Now bring me a wolf. And you ask me whether a wolf <coughs> excuse me, cannot eat grass. 
whether it can be and just as docile and just as domesticated as the sheep? I answer no, because its nature is contrary thereto. You say, well, it has ears and legs. Can it not hear the, the shepherd's voice and follow him whithersoever he leadeth it? I answer, certainly there's no physical cause why it could not do so, but its nature forbids, and therefore I say it cannot do so. Can it not be tamed, this wolf? Can not its ferocity be removed? Probably it may be so far subdued that it may become apparently tame, but there will always be a marked distinction between the wolf and the sheep, because there's a distinction in nature. Now, the reason why man cannot come to Christ is not because he, he cannot come so far as his body or his mere power of mind is concerned, but because his nature is so corrupt that he has neither the will nor the power to come to Christ unless drawn by the Spirit. Yeah, but let me give you a better illustration. You see a mother with a baby in her arms. You put a knife into her hand and you say, Stab that baby to the heart. She replies, very truthfully, I cannot. Now, as far as her bodily power is concerned, she can, if she pleases. There's the knife. There's the child. The child cannot resist. She has quite sufficient strength in her, in her hand immediately to stab it to its heart. But she's quite correct when she says she cannot do it. As a mere act of the mind, it's quite possible she might think of such a thing as killing the child, and yet she says she cannot think of such a thing. And she does not say falsely, for her nature as a mother forbids her doing a thing from which her soul revolts. Simply because she is that child's parent, she feels she cannot kill it. It is even so with a sinner. Coming to Christ is so obnoxious to human nature, that although so far as physical and mental forces are concerned, and these have but a very narrow sphere in salvation, men could come if they would. It is strictly correct to say that they cannot and will not, unless the Father, who hath sent Christ, doth draw them. Let's enter a little more deeply into the subject, try to show you wherein this inability of man consists in its more minute particulars. Uh, first, it lies in the obstinacy of the human will. Oh, saith the Arminian, men may be saved if they will. And we reply, my dear sir, we all believe that. But it is just the if they will. Uh, that's the difficulty. We assert that no man will come to Christ unless he be drawn. Nay, we do not assert it, but Christ himself declares it. Ye will not come unto me, that ye might have life. And as long as that ye will not come stands on record in Holy Scripture, we shall not be brought to believe in any doctrine of the freedom of the human will. It is strange how people, when talking about free will, talk of things which they do not at all understand. Now, uh, says one, I believe uh, men can be saved if they will. My dear sir, that, that is not the question at all. The question is, 
are men ever found naturally willing to submit to the humbling terms of the gospel of Christ? We declare upon scriptural authority that the human will is so desperately set on mischief, so depraved and so inclined to everything that is evil and, and so disinclined to everything that is good, that without the powerful, supernatural, irresistible influence of the Holy Spirit, no human will ever be constrained toward Christ. You, you reply that, that men sometimes are willing without the help of the Holy Spirit. And I answer, did you ever meet with any person who was? Scores and hundreds, nay, thousands of Christians have I conversed with of different opinions, opinions yeah, young and old, but it's never been my lot to meet with one who could affirm that he came to Christ of himself without being drawn. The universal confession of all true believers is this. I know that unless Jesus Christ had sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, I would to this very hour have been wandering far from him, at a distance from him, and loving that distance well. No, with common consent, all believers affirm the truth that men will not come to Christ until the Father who hath sent Christ doth draw them. Again, not only is the will obstinate, but the understanding is darkened. Of that we have abundant scriptural proof. I'm not now making more assertions, but, but stating doctrines authoritatively taught in the Holy Scriptures known in the conscience of every Christian man that the understanding of man is so dark that he cannot by any means understand the things of God until his understanding has been opened. Man is by nature blind within. The cross of Christ, so laden with glories, glittering with attractions, never attracts him because he's blind and cannot see its beauties. Talk to him of the wonders of the creation. Show to him the many-colored arch that spans the sky. Let him behold the glories of a landscape. He's well able to see all things, but talk to him of the wonders of the covenant of grace. Speak to him of the security of the believer in Christ. Tell him of the beauties of the person of the Redeemer. He's, he's quite deaf to, to all your description. You are as one that playeth a, a goodly tune, it is true, but he regards not, he is deaf, he has no comprehension. Or to, to return to the verse which we so specially marked in our reading, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And inasmuch as he is a natural man, it's not in his power to discern the things of God. Well, says one, I, I think I have arrived at a very tolerable judgment in matters of theology. I think I understand almost every point. True, that, uh, that you may do in the letter of it, but in the spirit of it, in the true reception thereof into the soul, and in the actual understanding of it, it's impossible for you to have attained unless you've been drawn by the Spirit. For as long as that scripture stands true, 
that carnal that carnal men cannot receive spiritual things, it must be true that you have not received them unless you have been renewed and made a spiritual man in Christ Jesus. The will, then, and the understanding are two great doors, both blocked up against our coming to Christ. And until these are opened by the sweet influences of the divine spirit, they must be forever closed to anything like coming to Christ. Again, the affections, which constitute a very great part of man, are depraved. Man, as he is, before he receives the grace of God, loves anything and everything above spiritual things. If you want proof of this, look around you. There needs no monument to the depravity of the human affections. Cast your eyes everywhere. There is not a street, nor a house, nay, nor a heart, which doth not bear upon its sad witness of this dreadful truth. Why is it that men are not found on the Sabbath day universally flocking to the house of God? Why are we not more constantly found reading our Bibles? How is it that prayer is a duty almost universally neglected? Why is it that Christ Jesus is so little beloved? Why are even his professed followers so cold in their affections to him? Whence arise these things? Assuredly, dear brethren, we can trace them to no other source than this, the corruption and vitiation of the affections. We love that which we ought to hate. We hate that which we ought to love. It is but human nature, fallen human nature, that man should love this present life better than the life to come. It is but the effect of the fall that man should love sin better than righteousness and the ways of this world better than the ways of God. And again, we repeat it, until these affections be renewed and turned into a fresh channel by the gracious drawings of the Father, it is not possible for any man to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now yet once more, conscience. Conscience, too, has been overpowered by the fall. I believe there is no more egregious mistake made by the divines than when they tell people that conscience is the vice-regent of God within the soul, and that it is one of those powers which retains its ancient dignity and stands erect amidst the fall of its compeers. Uh, my brethren, when man fell in the garden, manhood fell entirely. There was not one single pillar in the temple of manhood that stood erect. It is true, conscience was not destroyed, the pillar was not shattered. It fell, and it fell in one piece, and there it lies along the, the mightiest remnant of God's once perfect work in man. But that conscience is fallen, I am sure. Look at men. Who among them is the possessor of a good conscience toward God, except for the regenerated man? Do you imagine that if men's consciences always spoke loudly and clearly to them, they would live in the daily commission of acts which are as opposed to the right as darkness is to light? No, beloved. Conscience can tell me that I am a sinner, but conscience cannot make me feel that I am one. Conscience may tell me that such and such a thing is wrong, but, but how wrong it is 
Conscience itself does not know. Did any man's conscience, unenlightened by the Spirit, ever tell him that his sins deserve damnation? Or if conscience did do that, did it ever lead any man to feel an abhorrence of sin as sin? In fact, did conscience ever bring a man to such a self-renunciation that he did totally abhor himself and all his works and come to Christ? No, conscience, although it is not dead, is ruined. Its power is impaired. It hath not that clearness of eye and that strength of hand and that thunder of voice which it had before the fall, but has ceased to a great degree to exert its supremacy in the town of man's soul. Then, beloved, it becomes necessary for this very reason, because conscience is depraved, that the Holy Spirit should step in to show us our need of a Savior and draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, says one, as, as far as, as you have hitherto gone, it appears to me that you consider that the reason why men do not come to Christ is that they will not rather than they cannot. True, most true. I believe the greatest reason of man's inability is the obstinacy of his will. That once overcome, I think the great stone is rolled away from the sepulchre and the hardest part of the battle is already won. But, but allow me to go a little further. My text does not say, no man will come. But it says, no man can come. Now, many interpreters believe that the can here is but a strong expression conveying no more meaning than the word will. I feel assured that this is not correct. There is in man not only unwillingness to be saved, but there is a spiritual powerlessness to come to Christ. And this I will prove to every Christian at any rate. But we will have to wait till the next time for the rest of his proof. I think you've got a lot already from what has already been said. So glad you could be here today and hope that you will look around the website for other great men of God when you have the time. Their stories, their words, North Korea audios, the Bible studies that we've done, the books that are there. Just click on store. Go over to Facebook if you dare these days and go to my timeline, see what I'm into. Criesfromamongus.com is the blog that I've put together dealing with the cries that rise from the church to the ears of God. And then you can go to YouTube and type in Bob from Hackberry House and see some visual things there. And then the Zoom meeting, if you'll just send me an email and a testimony, I'll send you an invitation to a Saturday night, 7 o'clock Central Time meeting of men. And we talk about a lot of wonderful things. I just do hope that you'll come. We have a, anywhere from three to seven people that will show up on a Saturday. But I'd like to make it more. You, you are totally welcome. Come as you are. <laughs> okay, God bless you. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>